Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. In today's episode, I'm going to explain to you my thoughts and feelings about no longer seeing any patients. I'm also going to talk about why a lot of us can struggle to stop thinking about our therapist even long after our session is over. Then we're going to dig into why we can obsess over eating disorder content when we ourselves struggle with one. I'm also going to talk about why our struggles themselves can feel inconsistent. Like sometimes we're doing really well, sometimes they're doing poorly. What gives? And then how to deal when our child has BPD and we're in that push-pull dynamic, that splitting behavior. And then I'll also talk about the effects of financial trauma and how that can bother us much into our adulthood and what we can do about it. And finally, I'm going to talk about what emotional neglect is and how it can play out as we grow up. Without further ado, let's jump into this first question. The first question says, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about how you feel about not working with clients anymore, the reasons that you stopped and whether you ever miss it. In what ways do you find YouTube more fulfilling, if you do? And additionally, did you ever get annoyed or bored with your clients if they kept on telling you the same sets of issues? I can't help but feel that therapists must feel bored or frustrated sometimes since we, clients, keep on saying all the same things for such a long time, even though you say you don't. Thank you so much for all that you do. Of course. Now, first off, um, it was really hard for me to let go of my practice. It was kind of a slow it was a slow process and I didn't talk about it on here, not for any real reason other than the fact that like, it doesn't really affect you in particular. Um, but I didn't just stop seeing patients. I think if I had done it that way, it would have been really, really jarring for me. And the adjustment would have been really tricky, not to mention for my, my patients, but I slowly started weaning it down. So I quit my full-time job for those of you who don't know, um, Oh God, probably like seven years ago now, maybe longer, but around there. I worked at a hospital. I worked at Enos or treatment center. I don't think I worked at both of those. It was the hospital was the final one, but either way, I quit my full-time job that came with benefits and health insurance. Um, and then I still had my private practice and I was in it two days a week, but there came a point where, and if any of my older patients are listening, they'll be like, yep, there came a point where I was traveling just too much and I would be gone and I'd be doing like, you know, essentially what we did during COVID and like online sessions, phone sessions and FaceTime, stuff like that, like from all over the world, like being in Australia, I was still doing it. And when we were in Scotland, I was doing it and Amsterdam and Germany and the time change, I'd be doing it like really late at night. Anyway, it got really difficult, not only for them, but for me. And it felt really unethical to keep seeing my patients that maybe needed more care when I technically wasn't around as much. And so I started weaning down, starting with my patients that needed more care. So some of my patients who needed to see me twice a week, and then I went down to one day a week, I tried to refer them out to someone who could take them on, you know, more regularly. And a lot of them got upset about it at first, and I gave them many months. This wasn't like a cut and dried. It was like three months or so um, to try to find someone else and to let them know why and to talk it out and process it as best I could. It's always uncomfortable. It was always a shitty process for everybody, but we did our best. And slowly but surely, I whittled it down till I think I had two patients at the end. Um, yeah, and then one decided to stop seeing me, which had kind of been the norm for him. He'd kind of come and go off and on. 
And then the other one I referred out. And it was oddly relieving at the time because I was traveling a lot and I just felt such guilt about leaving. Um, I know in other countries, therapists take like a month off or two months off. I never did that. I mean, I would take like a week or two and I'd have one of my friends cover for me. But it, the fact that I was gone, you know, like four or five times a year for extended period, it just felt very bad for them. And so that I felt the relief of that guilt. But it, then probably like six months later, I started to miss it. Um, and I still miss it. I don't think there's nothing that can compare to working with someone in session in your office and legitimately watching those aha moments happen, watching them grow. Um, nothing compares to that. And so I think although always be a part of me that misses it. However, the thing that I think makes it bearable for me and it, the reason that I decided to move through that and to let go of my practice was the fact that I get so... I get such an amazing opportunity to reach so many of you through one video. And that is, it's just never, it's never not cool to me. It's never not fulfilling. It's always just such like, it's such a privilege. And so that impact really made it worth it to me. And it's part of the reason why I want to speak more because I love seeing people in person. There's nothing like getting to see all of your faces as we talk about something that's really difficult or complicated or whatever and to see it resonate or not or hear your questions it, there's something so powerful about in-person stuff and so that's why I like to speak more but I do find YouTube and podcasting and all the things that I create and all the ways that I've gotten to connect with you each and every one of you that is is just so fucking awesome and so fulfilling and so it's a different type of work but I find it to be just as, if not more so, fulfilling because I can affect and help so many more people with my time. And yeah, so those are my thoughts about that. Now, the question about getting annoyed or bored with clients, no. Um, even if you feel like you're stuck and you're like, I'm like I'm in a hamster in a wheel and I just keep talking about the same things over and over and over and over, it's not really, that's not the... I don't see it that way, I guess is what I'm trying to say, because each and every time you talk about an issue, you're going to say it a little bit differently and we're going to see a little bit of growth. And therapy, the interesting thing about it is that it's it's very slow. It takes time and we know that. And so as you progress, even though it feels like oh, I'm still stuck on this same issue, you've probably grown in other ways that you're not giving yourself credit for. Like maybe even though we're still struggling with some symptoms of depression or that same relationship, maybe we're not as reactive or maybe we have taken some action where before would have, we would never have been able to do that, right? And as a therapist, we can see that and it makes us hopeful and excited for you. And so I never really get bored of my clients. A lot of my clients have the same sets of issues for years. It's just from different perspectives and different scenarios. So no, I don't get sick of it. I don't think that they're boring. I find it an interesting puzzle. And I think that's why I love doing therapy so much is because it's, I get to be a detective about it with you, right? We get to try to figure it out. Like, why is this holding us stuck? Why have I been talking about this for like six months or a year or two years? What gives? We get to try to figure it out together. And I think that's part of the job that like I love so much because each and every person is different. Each 
person's solution is going to look a different kind of way and yeah super fulfilling so no we don't i know it seems crazy that we don't but we don't get sick of it we don't think you're boring okay let's move on to question number two this question says dear katie i hope you're having an amazing week i am i hope you are too says i wanted to ask why i can't stop thinking about my therapist no matter how hard i try I spend hours of my day either Googling her up or trying to find a way to hear her voice or to even find a picture. I feel horrible for invading her privacy, but no matter what I do, I can't seem to stop. Even though I find the same things online every time I search her up, I still continue to do it for hours, hoping to find something new. Afterwards, I feel extremely guilty and I can't sleep and I want to punish myself for being so obsessed. That's interesting. In a non-romantic way. In my mind, She's become one of my voices, and I always imagine scenarios regarding her. If I ever do try to stop thinking about her, then I feel this void and emptiness that makes me want to cry. That is important information. Log that away. We'll get back to that. This habit keeps on getting worse, and it's not allowing me to concentrate or think about anything else. I'm still in school, and I can't even focus on my homework. And P.S., I haven't experienced any trauma, so I don't think that's the cause. Can you give me some insight as to why I do this and how to stop? Thank you very much for everything. You're very welcome. So much to talk about here. Now, when we find ourselves obsessing about someone and it almost feels like we don't have any control over it, it's usually due to emotional neglect. Now, not always. This person in particular says they don't have any trauma. We often don't think of neglect as abuse or as trauma, but it is. But just hear me out. Now, when we're emotionally neglected, I have tons of videos about it, by by the way. So I encourage you to get on YouTube and put emotional neglect, Katie Morton, they will come up. Um, Look those up because my guesstimation is that when you said you feel, if you ever try to stop thinking about her, you feel this void and emptiness that makes you want to cry. That means that that void and the emptiness existed prior to therapy. And it's probably the, the hole in your life where your parents should have filled it. Now, it's not to say your parents aren't good people, that they didn't put a roof over your head and feed you and take you to school. On paper, emotionally neglectful parents look amazing. It's fine. They look great. Cool. However, they didn't support us emotionally the way that we needed. So we're left uh, for most of our life feeling like we're all alone with it. We can feel like we never had that supportive parent that people talk about. We never felt seen or heard or maybe even safe because maybe it wasn't safe to express how we felt. And in our heads, we're like, well, that's not trauma and that's not abuse. Yes, it is. Because if we don't feel safe to say, hey, I'm upset. Hey, I'm angry. Hey, I'm sad. We're afraid that's going to be met with, you know, other people have it worse. I don't know why you're being so dramatic. You're so sensitive or whatever they might say. That slowly tells us or gives us the belief, it slowly develops this belief that we're not important that we don't need to be seen or heard, that we're too dramatic, too sensitive, too emotional, too whatever. And we take that with us into our life. And that leaves this void where safety, security, feeling seen and secure should have been. And then we find a therapist who offers us something we didn't even realize we needed. Holy shit, we hit the holy grail of support in connection. They validate us. They're empathic. We feel seen and heard. Oh, it's so soothing. Oh, I can finally feel that void in between sessions. 
We try to fill it by obsessing about them, looking them up, hearing their voice, seeing a photo, all of that stuff, because it feels like we're not getting that need met again. And I know that sounds really strange maybe, but just look that stuff up and watch some of my videos. And I believe the healing piece for you is going to be doing some inner child work and possibly some attachment work. And those can be so connected. Now, I have workshops on both of those on my website. If you go to katiemorton.com, you go to my shop, you can see all of my workshops. I have an attachment-based one. I have an inner child workshop. Both are available. They have uh, worksheets you can download. You can listen along. There's homework. But it will help you kind of tease out what you maybe needed as a child that wasn't acceptable to need get back in touch with that child, talk to them, hear about what they want and need, and figure out how it's affecting you today as we go back in time through letters and other activities to try to talk to younger us and offer that to him or her. And what I mean by that, and it sounds a little woo-woo, but it's like, let's say I grew up feeling like I could never have strong emotional reactions, that I was too much. Then adult me could kind of go back in letter form. That works the best for me, but you do you, you could imagine talking to a younger you. But we write a letter to our younger self and we say, I see you and I want you to know that you're not too sensitive. You have every right to be upset. It's okay to feel angry. This was happening. This is shitty, right? We can acknowledge that. And to have mom or dad or grandma or papa say X, Y, or Z was really hurtful. I would, I, as an adult, I would cry again about it. And some of that validation, some of that support, some of that feeling seen, it can help us heal. It can help us change that old story, change that belief into something that's a little bit healthier for us so we can feel a little more secure. And then the reason all of that work is important is because then we won't be looking outwards to fill it with someone else. And what's happening is incredibly common in therapy because therapists offer us this unconditional positive regard. And that is so healing. It's often what we needed our whole lives and never got. That feeling of being important and supported and not judged. Oh, beautiful. So that's really where I think it's coming from and how you can slowly stop. But I just want you to not be judging yourself about this. There's nothing wrong with you. This is a normal process. We have to heal little you so the adult you knows that it's okay to be in between sessions and to go without contact with our therapist and that we'll be okay, right? That we we can offer that love and support to ourselves. But let your therapist know this is happening. And you can even say like, hey, I talked to this weird therapist on the internet and she mentioned, you know, some attachment work and inner child work. Maybe we could start doing that. And there were some add-ons says, I also struggle with this. And I now struggle with the same issue with one of my coworkers. We have similar childhood trauma, similar home issues and coping skills. Some days I can't stop thinking about this person, wanting to be with them all the time, even though I'm happily married. Is this transference? If so, how do you start coping with it? I love what you do. Your videos have been super helpful for me. Of course, I'm so glad I could be there. Um, now, if this is romantic, then it could be something different. It sounds like you feel a connection to this person. You feel seen and heard because you share like similar childhood trauma, similar home issues and coping skills. I think there's a connection there that you probably never got before. Similar to the main question, I believe inner child work would still be the key here in attachment because we're feeling connected because of that old story. It's almost like we've been singing a song our whole lives 
and it's our own song and we never thought anybody else understood this song they don't understand the lyrics they think it's kind of silly they ignore it and then we run into someone else singing the same song and we're like oh, we're kindred spirits and we feel this connection and of course we can feel connected that's the power of group therapy because we've been through similar stuff and so we feel more connected to people it's like we're all singing the same song so that feels good however this obsession or this focus on this person tells me that there's this kind of void this emotional neglect or possibly emotional abuse because i'm wondering if when you grew up if you were told that obviously you have trauma too so there was abuse in there somewhere but you might have been told that you know you're overreacting that this wasn't that bad you might have done it to yourself like minimized and validated you know the shame spiral of trauma is real and so we might have told ourselves over and over the story that we're too much and that this is not that big of a deal and we're making it into more than it was and all of this and so we come into contact with someone else who's been through it and it feels more validating we feel less judgmental and it feels really good now with in your case, obviously the inner child work would still be beneficial. However, processing through that trauma should take away this obsession slash urge to focus on this person and to think about them all the time. Um, yeah, and I don't know if you have any OCD. It could come from that possibly too. But my guess is it's more trauma-based. It's more attachment-based. And it's still trying to fill that void. And you're happily married because your marriage is, is actually... I would assume like a healthy relationship, not built on codependence, but this other relationship that you're cultivating where you can't stop thinking about them sounds very unhealthy. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I'm just saying, I don't want you to think that this connection is better than the one that you have with your spouse, because this is actually more of a, a shared story, a shared trauma. Um, and that bond is different. And so that inner child work and working on that trauma in therapy will will help alleviate that, okay? Now, there's another question that said, as an add-on, if, if what you experience, it, what if you experience this with someone who isn't a therapist? Same answer, really, doesn't really matter. Surely that's not healthy, right? No, but it, it has a reason. Unhealthy doesn't, I don't want any judgment to come along with the, the statement, oh, that's unhealthy. I want you to understand that unhealthy things mean that they, you know, aren't true to self. They feel like they're like inauthentic. They can cause unwanted consequences. They can cause um, us to feel more invalidated or they can cause us to feel, you know, these unhealthy things numb out, right? It doesn't mean that we need to judge ourselves about it. We just need to understand that they're not helping us, right? They're hurting us. And so, yes, it is unhealthy for us to be, um, obsessed with someone therapist or not it's all very normal but it's not healthy and the person asks is this a type of limerence now limerence is like an involuntary state of infatuation or when we're obsessed with another person and it's it's kind of like it's all consuming passion and, and filled with intrusive thoughts and that's why i mentioned ocd because it could be a piece of ocd if you didn't know a lot of people with OCD come along with uh, these intense, intrusive thoughts. It could be that. It could be limerence. I would argue that if it's not associated with OCD, that this obsession comes from attachment and inner child wounds more often than not. But yes, it definitely could be a form of limerence. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, I would love some feedback on why I seem to obsess over eating disorder content. 
Lately, I've been obsessed with books, movies, and videos about eating disorders. I've gone through several periods like this in the past. The obsession seems to only last like a week each time. I can't seem to focus on anything else, which makes it hard for me to concentrate at work and to talk to my husband about how I'm doing. Because you may ask, I don't think I have an eating disorder. I'm in therapy for anxiety, but I do have a history of disordered eating. I've always struggled with body image, but over the past year, it seems to have gotten worse. I went through periods of a little restriction, but nothing serious, more like traditional dieting, clean eating, exercises, obsession, etc. I don't do any of these things anymore, but I still count calories and avoid certain foods. I feel like I made this sound worse than it really is. No, you did not, because I really do not engage in any actual behaviors. It sounds like you do. Hopefully this information helps. So my question is, why do I obsess over eating disorder content? How can I stop? Thanks so much. This is a great question. And it's always interesting how our lang- the language that we use to try to minimize our struggles. Now, this person has eating disorder behavior, but they're talking about it like it's not that big of a deal. And I know our society like, oh, pats you on the back. You're on a diet. Oh, good. You exercise all the time. Oh, good for you. Look at you. So healthy. Mm -mm. That's not always the case. It sounds like we have a lot of obsessive thoughts, meaning our, I would argue, and I don't know if this is true, but I would hypothesize rather that you're like at least 80, if not 90% of your thoughts are focused on calories, clean eating, exercise, diet stuff, restrictions, all those things, even though you might not be engaging in it right now. Your thoughts are still filled with it. Hence the obsession with eating disorder content. It's almost like instead of you doing it yourself in your regular life, you're focused on watching other people do it. And it's almost like a way of engaging with your eating disorder. You're like, ooh, I'm so into this. I want to focus on this. I want to learn from these people. It's an obsession because the whole goal of any eating disorder behavior is to help us cope. It's a numb out. You might not be actively using the behaviors in your life, but this obsession is another behavior. It's another way to numb out. It's another way to disconnect from what's really going on and how you're really doing. And I don't mean this in any judgmental way. You have some eating disorder struggles. Like you said, you've you've struggled with it. And still count calories and avoid certain foods, which tells me it's still very much alive, but you like stuffed it down. And I'm not, it's not like you made it sound worse than it really is. It it is affecting you. It is affecting your life. It's getting in the way. Hence why you asked a question and you really obsess over this eating disorder content as another way to engage with your eating disorder, as another way to cope, as another way to numb out. It's incredibly common. I used to call, there's this kind of obsession And then I used to talk about what used to be called food porn when my patients who would restrict their intake would then watch a ton of like Food Network or cooking shows as like a way of like watching it. It was obsessive and it was like food porn because they wouldn't allow themselves this. So they'd watch a lot of it. And again, their brain was filled with most thoughts about food, eating, not eating, restriction, exercise, right? Eating disorder thoughts. And so, yeah, I hope that that answers your question. That's really why you're doing it. It's very common. It's incredibly normal. Don't think anything's crazy wrong with you, but we do need to be honest about the fact that we have an eating disorder. It might not have gotten to this extreme place that you think it needs to in order to, you know, warrant getting help for it or talking about it. But trust me when I tell you that it needs to be talked about because it's still here and it exists for a reason and we need to figure out what that reason is. Okay. And that's how you stop really is acknowledging 
the eating disorder, talking about it, working on it. I cannot recommend Eating in the Light of the Moon. It's a book. I can't recommend it enough. It's in my Amazon shop. If you go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton, you can find it there. Check it out. It'll really, really, really help. Okay. There's a comment on this as, as an add-on, why do we obsess about our diagnosis? I also watched a lot of documentaries and read books. Is it normal to consume a lot of content? I think I might be identifying myself too much with it. I seem to want to collect at least one thing for each diagnosis, but I have this issue in general, like having something that represents each of my hobbies or such, or wanting all of the books by one author, even if I haven't even read any of his books yet. What is that? Hmm. I mean, usually the obsession or wanting to read about our diagnosis is kind of, I call it part of the process. It's kind of part of our psychoeducation where we learn about what's bothering us and we try to get to know it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Obsessing and doing all or nothing black and white, hmm. I would do what's called a differential diagnosis, which is like, oh, it could come from here, 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 here. And I would try to, with my patients, slowly discern which one we think it is. And the ones that come to my mind, first of all, is obviously an anxiety disorder of any kind. Like this obsessive nature could come from generalized anxiety disorder or OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. I also wonder because of this like black and white, all or nothing, I'm like, is there any kind of BPD or borderline personality disorder type stuff going on? Because that impulsivity, impulsivity could also be a piece of PTSD. Those, Depending on your history, those would be the things that I'd kind of look at and try to discern where it's coming from for you. Um, It's very normal for us to want to learn a lot about ourselves, but I think when you're so focused on it, it's, it's another coping skill. It's like, I would argue that possibly this is not with like the, you know, wanting to get all the books from a certain author, but the beginning part where you said like you read all the documentaries, all the books about your diagnosis, there could be this piece of like intellectualization that our number one uh, defense mechanism that we use is intellectualizing things. We want to learn all about it so we can understand it from every angle and then we can do something. And so that might be what's happening too. But those are just some of my thoughts. It could be coming from a lot of different places. I talk to your therapist about it, let them know that this is happening and let's tease it out. Those are just some of my ideas. You know better what's going on with you. Did any of those resonate? Where do we think it's coming from? Um, But more often than not, it's kind of coming from some kind of anxiety slash obsessive piece like that OCD. Another add-on said, is it at all normal to romanticize your eating disorder when you reflect on it? And in a way, long for the time that you were still in the throes of the illness. I've reached a healthy place physically after a history with an eating disorder. And while I know I should be happy about my progress, I find myself missing the way that I look. The occupation with all the unhealthy behaviors and the concern that others had for me when I was at my worst. It seems the farther from that place I get, the more I long for it. It's caused me to revert to a lot of things that I didn't do before I got to a quote-unquote healthy place. It's caused, um, am I still placing my identity with my eating disorder? Thank you for all that you do, Katie. Yes and no. What this tells me is that we're grieving the loss of our eating disorder and there's still some needs we need to pick up on this healthy side. So the need for attention and for people to care for you is not being met. And that's not, that's not a bad thing. We all need attention. We all need to feel cared for. We all need to feel seen. And so we're not getting that now. We need to figure out a healthy way to get it. So I challenge you to tell your therapist about this 
and to come up with some ideas of what might help us feel cared for. Like, for example, um, could we talk to one of our, our friends about our struggles in a real way? Do we think they could offer us some empathy and support? That's one way. Maybe we, I don't know, have a party. Our, our next birthday, let's throw a party and have people show up for us. I know that's like a big thing, but I'm just giving you some ideas, like reaching out and getting support and proving to our brain that people can care for us without us having to be sick. And we can actually ask for that care and support and that not be a bad thing. Everybody needs care and support. Everybody needs to feel seen and heard. And there's some of those needs that haven't been met yet on this other side, as well as that plus of grieving the loss of your eating disorder. Because it it is part, I think you probably did connect it to your identity and who you are, and we have to grieve that. So give yourself time. No room for judgment here. This is just something that we're struggling with. It's another stage, and we're going to move through it. But we can get those needs met on the healthy side of this, on the other side of our eating disorder. We just have to focus on it and be honest about what's coming up because this is all part of the process. Give yourself time. And I'm proud of you for coming as far as you have. Another person says, I do the same thing with self-harm. I consume or research TV and am moved with the self-harm scenes or themes or characters who self-harm. I also watch self-harm training webinars aimed at therapists and am on reddits for self-harm. What are your thoughts on this too? Again, it's a part of it. It's another way to numb out. It's another thing to focus on. And I think if we're not engaging in the behavior, that's the way that we're engaging in it. And so it's very, very common. This means that we're still in the throes of our self-injury, that we're still struggling with it. We don't know how else to cope with what's coming up for us. Maybe we don't have any coping skills, but I'd encourage you to reach out to a therapist and to find a way to start talking through the things that you want to numb out from. Because when we self-injure, when we use our eating disorder, it's because to sit with our feelings is so fucking uncomfortable. To admit that what's happening in the scenarios or situations we're going through makes us want to crawl out of our skin. So instead of doing that, we self-injure, we use our eating disorder behaviors, something else to focus on. It's a way to numb out. It's a way to disconnect. That's incredibly common. However, it's not what we want to keep doing. It's not healthy. It doesn't actually help us move through anything. It kind of keeps us frozen in this numbed out freeze state, right? And so that's why you're focusing on it is because you're really active with it. So we have to find other ways to cope. We have to understand where, like what purpose is our self-harm serving? What are we numbing out from? Is sadness a trigger? Is joy a trigger? Is it trauma triggers? Is it the fact that we have, you know, some impulsive thoughts? Maybe we have some BPD tendencies and the only way we know how to feel anything is to self-injure. Like, be curious about this. Not judgmental. Try to understand it. And then we can try other coping skills in place of it. It's not going to feel as good, but hang with me. We can start to feel the feelings as terrible as they make seem at the beginning. But it will move through us. And then the urge to utilize this type of behavior will go down slowly but surely. Okay? Final add-on says, why do we have a lack of awareness when our eating disorder is the one speaking rather than our own voice, because we don't always, we might not even remember what our own voice sounds like. Our eating disorder is often way more abrasive, way more sure of itself, way more assertive than our voice. And our eating disorder is protective, right? It helps us deal with stuff, but by not dealing with it. But 
we think it helps. And so that's why we struggle with the awareness because we're like, oh, this one feels good. And oh, but this one seems like it's going to actually help me. We might not even know what we would want if our eating disorder didn't tell us, you know? But be patient with yourself as you discover who you are. Often we hide away in these coping skills because it feels unsafe to be ourselves. This is often born out of trauma when we were growing up. And if it feels unsafe to be ourselves, then we never got to know him or her. So give yourself a chance. Slowly start trying to tease out, is it the eating disorder voice? Is it my voice? It might take you a minute. You might have to do it after the fact when you journal. I'm here to tell you that if your thoughts have anything to do with diet, exercise, eating, not eating, hiding food, hoarding food, buying food, if those hang around for a long time in your head, those are eating disorder thoughts. There's a lot of thoughts about like, but if you were just skinnier, if you just looked this way, if you just stopped doing that, oh, you're so stupid, fat, lazy. Those tend to be eating disorder thoughts. You're not sick enough for help eating disorder thought. So those are just a few to get you started. But listen and keep, you know, slowly kind of keep track. It takes time, but you'll start to be able to tell which voice is which. Okay, moving on to question number four. It says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, why do I feel like my struggles are never consistent? I feel like one week I'm struggling a lot with my eating disorder. Another week I can't stop thinking and getting urges to self-harm and then feeling guilty for always doing it. And then a different week I have breakdowns, panic attacks, and crying spells due to some traumatic things that happened not so long ago. Nothing makes sense or feels real. I'm scared that I might be making things up or that there's something wrong with me. For context, I started therapy about two months ago. However, a few sessions in, I started to notice that every time I try to double down and focus on one problem, a couple of weeks later, something else takes over me and it's all I can think about. That always results in our sessions feeling like they're starting a new conversation about a new issue almost every week. And it makes me feel like I'm not making any progress or digging into some things when I should be. Why do the things I wrestle with change so drastically week by week? Thank you so much, Katie. Your podcasts are often the highlight of my week. Oh, it makes me feel good. Okay. These are both coping skills. And when you try to take one away and focus on it, the other one pops up. It's almost like uh, if, I don't even know how to, I guess there's no good analogy in my brain right now, but our coping skills often teeter-totter because, well, teeter-totter meaning eating disorder, self-injury. This is a very common teeter-totter too. The self-injury gets worse or self-injury gets worse. Eating disorder goes down. Self-injury gets uh, better. Eating disorder goes up. So the behaviors that are at their worst often are like going the opposite direction of the other. And the reason for this is that there are ways to cope. That's what we use. When we feel bad, those are the ones that we use. And so if we take one away, the other one's going to flare up and vice versa. And the only way to get out of this type of teeter-totter, annoying kind of pattern is to come up with some other ways to cope. Now, are they going to be as great as our self-injury or our eating disorder? No. But it'll take about five to one. I know that sucks. I hate that answer, but it's the truth. So come up with some coping skills. I have a video on YouTube. Go look up 25 coping skills, Katie Morton. The video will pop up and that should help you come up with some ideas of things to try. Now, when it comes to self-injury and eating disorders, I always have to throw in one process-based coping skill and that is the impulse log. I have it in my book, Traumatized. I think it's on page like 93, 91, somewhere around there. I have the impulse log. Um, also, you can go to selfinjury.com, I believe it is. Let me pull it up really quick so that I make sure I'm giving you the right um, 
the right link. Yes, selfinjury.com and you go to resources and then you go to the impulse control log. It's not the best description, but it gives you an idea of how to use it. And essentially what we're doing is we're trying to better understand what our impulse is telling us, meaning our impulse to self-injure, our impulse to use eating disorder behaviors is probably predicated on the fact that we are struggling with some kind of emotional experience. I'm, I had a flashback, I wanna self-injure. I'm feeling really sad today, I wanna uh, binge eat or restrict or whatever. We have to kind of acknowledge the emotional connection and being able to find other ways to cope and impulse log being a great coping skill. We can also distract, you know, walk our dog, uh, clean our house, watch a favorite TV show, play a favorite video game. Um, if we mix in some distraction-based coping skills with some process-based coping skills, we can usually get ourselves out of this teeter-totter. But it's incredibly common and it's because those are the ways that we deal with life. And when life happens, which it does every day, we if we're trying to suppress one, the other one's going to come to our aid. Okay, hang in there, try out some coping skills and see which ones work for you. Okay, moving on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, this is a difficult question to ask. Almost five years ago, our young adult son moved out of our home, leaving only a note that said moved on it. He cut off all communication with his dad and me and has very little with his older sister. A year prior to him leaving, he was diagnosed with BPD after self-admitting himself to a mental health facility. When he came home, we had a roller coaster year with him, especially me. I'm struggling badly with the idea of never seeing him again, and I'm filled with shame and guilt. I don't want to la- the let, sorry, I don't want this last several chapters of my life to be like this. I am now agoraphobic, lonely, and so depressed. I need the joy back in my life. Who knows, perhaps by writing this comment, I will find my joy. Thanks. I'm so sorry you're going through this. My best advice is to get into therapy immediately. When someone in our life has borderline personality disorder, it can make it really difficult for them to manage any upset. Like if you have a disagreement with your child, which is completely normal. Let's say you even say and do something you wish you'd take, you could take back and you want to apologize for when we have BPD, we're so sensitive to everything. It's, it's why I call it an emotional burn victim. I forget who, it's not my term. I, I've taken it from someone else. But being an emotional burn victim means that we feel everything so intensely. And you pair that with the impulsivity of BPD, and that's why your son moved out. I'd assume something happened. He felt very wounded and had to leave. Now, he obviously needs to get help. He should be in treatment. Whether that means in a facility or, you know, getting therapy and group therapy. I love, um, you know, DBT or dialectical behavior therapy for that. But we can't force him. If he's an adult and he's over 18, he has to make that decision for himself. We can encourage it, but we can't change him at all. All we can do is change ourselves. And so what I really, really encourage you to do is to get some support. Um, If you're in the LA area, there is a group for actually I don't think it's for parents I think it's for children of those with BPD yeah bummer I was just thinking I'm like oh my god one of my favorite psychiatrists runs that group um yeah so but you could look for a group of parents you know with who have children with BPD could ask around get into your own therapy please 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 to get some support because the agoraphobia and the depression which means you can have anxiety and depression. We need to get some. We need to get help from that. We might need to see a psychiatrist and get on some medication. But again, we cannot control our child. I know it's really hard. I find now I don't have children, so I don't pretend to know. But I find the most difficult piece for a lot of my patients 
who are parents is the to understand and accept the fact that we can't control our children. And I think part of it's because when they were little, they depended on us so much and we had so much more control over them in many ways, but we cannot control other people. And now that your child's an adult, they can do whatever they want. We can't force them, but we can change ourselves. We can focus on ourselves and make positive changes that could potentially improve the relationship if he wants to. Again, we cannot make him, but please get into therapy. Please consider, you know, trying some medication. If that's something that you'd be interested in, I think that could really help. It can and will get better. Okay. There's a question, another question here. We have two more. This question number six says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. My question is about the constant worry about finances. I'm hoping this question may resonate with someone else out there. So for as long as I can remember, I worried about finances so much so that I avoid spending money on myself most of the time. If I receive a gift card from someone during the holidays, I sometimes use it to buy something else or to buy someone else a gift for a future occasion. I often experience pain that feels almost physical when spending money on something that isn't a recurring ex- expense. This is typically followed by a compulsion or a need to make up for it in some other way, like selling miscellaneous things, plants, antiques, etc. I think I do this in an effort to minimize the constant worry. There's a part of me that keeps telling myself, if you spend as little as possible, you can't run out, right? Does anybody else experience this all or nothing black and white thinking about finances? What do you think might cause this? Thanks for being here. Of course. Financial trauma is something that we haven't talked about enough. And maybe maybe it's something that I, I put together. Maybe it's a video series that I do. I could see, I have a friend, Chelsea Fagan, who has a financial channel. Maybe that's something we work on. But people don't talk enough about financial insecurity and the trauma that can come along with it. Now, um, financial insecurity does not mean that like, oh, my parents didn't buy me everything I wanted. Financial insecurity means that when we grew up, we often were worried about whether or not our parents could afford life for us. Maybe we went hungry. There wasn't food in the in the fridge. We There was no way for us to eat. Like even my friend Hannah, um, Hannah Hart, an old YouTuber, I don't know if she even still creates on here, but she had talked to me years and years and years ago about the fact that she grew up like that, where there wasn't any food in the house. She wrote it in her book, uh, Buffering, about how she would often at school, like people would say, oh, I don't want this. She'd be like, I'll eat it. Or they would like dare her to eat this stuff. And it was like, you know, like a peanut butter sandwich with ham in it. And they'd put all this stuff in it. And she'd be like, I just ate it because I didn't have lunch. Right. And that's insecurity, like food insecurity, financial insecurity. If your power or water got turned off, there's a beautiful book, probably too triggering. So don't, you know, don't read it if you don't feel good about it. But it's called The Glass, is it The Glass House or The Glass Glass Castle? It's about essentially about that. They're very financially insecure. Um, if you got eviction notices or had to move around a lot, or if you had people calling all the time, like creditors. Actually, I had a friend in grad school whose mom had taken out credit cards in her name because the mom was so like struggling so much and was a shop shopping addict. Um, but she'd get creditors calling her constantly. All of that is very traumatic. Remember, trauma occurs when we worry about the the safety or life of ourselves or someone else. And I don't know what's scarier than thinking that we have to live on the street. That's a trauma. That's terrifying, right? That's not safe. Not be able to pay bills and have bankruptcy or feel like our our, 
our lights are turned off, our power is turned off, we can't feed ourselves. That's very terrifying. So I just want to give that the space so that we can all acknowledge that financial insecurity is very traumatizing. I can even speak personally when Sean and I were super broke. I would wait, wait like lay awake at night just stressing and ang- so anxious. I would like sweat. Like I'd feel my heart racing. It was just so overwhelming. And that fear, that was not a trauma for me. I mean, I don't want to minimize my own experience, but I knew that I could, I guess, move back with my mom. Like Sean and I could do that, right? But it was very overwhelming and, and all-consuming. And so that's why it's hard for you to let go. Sean and I even joke that we don't forget. It's like, never forget. Like, I won't forget what it's like to be broke, you know? And that's why it's hard for us to spend money on certain things too. So I totally feel you there. Um, Healing from that is going to take some time. And I think there's a couple of pieces here, a couple words of advice. Number one, therapy, therapy, therapy. Talking about it or even just journaling about it. Acknowledging the trauma you sustained the insecurity. If you feel like it's safe enough, you could read that book, The Glass Castle. It's it's beautiful. But getting to therapy, talking about it, processing is going to be healing. Okay. Number one. Number two is checking your facts. We often have when we have had financial insecurity, when we are in the, into our life now, like it's not currently happening for us. We have a lot of beliefs or quote unquote facts that aren't facts, thoughts, that we've had repeatedly, that we just take as facts. And so we act out of those. Like, oh, if I do this, I'm going to run out. Or like your belief, like if I just don't, if I spend as little as possible, I can't run out, right? Like that's a belief that you have. You have to spend as little as possible. But do you? Let's check your facts, right? You might have a ton saved. I had a patient who struggled with this and she had so much money saved. She was like 26 years old and she had like $28,000 in savings. And she still was super, super stressed about finances. And so it might not even be the money part, even though it feels like it is. It's the anxiety of not having enough. We might hoard other things. I don't know. I'm just throwing some ideas out there. But let's check our facts on it. See somebody and talk about it. Process that trauma. And then another key trick, and and I think cognitive behavioral therapy could be really beneficial for you when it comes to this, Um, but also some trauma work couldn't hurt either. But another key piece is playing it out. So we can, worst case, best case, most likely case. We can do that when we find ourselves like frozen or terrified or restricting in one way or another. Um, yeah, because we're we're clearly, we're acting out of an old narrative. And so we need to check our facts on that before we continue that process. But therapy can really, really help with this. Also, um, I had my patient who was struggled with financial insecurity growing up and then had all his savings. Her and I put together kind of like her basic spending. She brought in, you know, like her her bank statements and we figured out what her spend was and what her income was and what she could save. And then I had her set aside like fun money. And every few months I'd be like, what are you going to spend your fun money on? You know, and it was just a couple hundred bucks, but she had to bring the receipt and show me that she did something for herself. Doesn't mean she had to spend it all. But there are some things that we can do to start slowly proving to ourselves that I do make enough, right? We're checking the facts. This is my spend every month. This is what I make every month. This is the extra that I have. This went into my savings, right? We can do all of that to slowly assuage those fears because it comes from a place. I don't want to negate the fact that you had been broke before and you were financially insecure. 
But that doesn't mean that this is the, re the reality today and we have to challenge that. But be patient with yourself. I, I know how it feels and it can be really stressful, okay? Final question, question number seven. Says, Katie, is it emotional neglect if your parents never played with you as a child? Yes. And didn't tell you how to use feminine hygiene products when you got your period and don't share anything about themselves. Yes, 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 yes. Emotional neglect is when our parents don't show up for us emotionally. I also would say that there was just neglect in general here. When our parents don't play with us, when they don't show us how to do anything, we're kind of on our own. Think of that in general, like how how much we need as children, how little we know, how we look up to our parents and other caregivers in our life, could be other members of our family, could be teachers, could be coaches, could be, you know, any person in our life that's kind of in like an adult role. We look to them to show us how to do things because we don't know. Luckily, I had sex ed in school and they taught us how to use feminine hygiene products, but my mom also taught me too. That's part of what you should have had growing up. So 100% this is emotional neglect and physical neglect. It's neglect in general. It's abuse. Um, and the fact that you don't know anything about them, then there's no relationship. That's that lack of connectivity. That is that emotional neglect piece, the not being played with and the not sharing anything about themselves. That is purely emotional neglect. The, the feminine hygiene products is neglect, not necessarily in an emotional form. Do you see what I'm saying? And it doesn't matter. I'm just teasing this out just as we talk about it. They're all very important and very damaging. And so I'd encourage you to get into therapy. Um, I have my inner child workshop could be beneficial. There's uh, there's a book, um, The Emotionally Absent Mother, beautiful book. There's also An Unavailable Father. Both those books are in my Amazon shop. So you can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. You can find them. Those are both incredibly helpful to work on with your therapist. Um, but yes, that is emotional neglect. And I'm so sorry you went through that. We're supposed to have support and people teach us and guide us along on the way and allow us to feel safe and seen and heard. There's a bunch of research. I'm just putting together a video about this, about feeling invisible and the toll that can take on us. And it's attached to this. And the fact that if our parents don't see us clearly, and honestly, and tell us about that. We can't see ourselves clearly and honestly. And so if they don't play with you, you don't really maybe know how to be a kid or how to have fun. It might be something as an adult you want to try to dip your toes into, learn how to be a little goofy, a little irresponsible sometimes. Also not sharing anything about themselves. That lack of connectivity, I would assume, meant that you either avoided, like had attachment issues where you avoided people getting close to you, or we overly attach too quickly because we're trying to fill that void. It could go back and forth. A lot of people think attachment styles are like fixed, but they're not. They're very fluid. We can kind of switch between them depending on which one serves our purpose at the time. Um, I'm so sorry you went through that, but therapy, inner child work, my, I have an inner child workshop and attachment workshop. Those could both be incredibly helpful, but yes, that was definitely neglect on your parents' behalf. And again, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. But with therapy, know that it can and will get better. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for sharing this with friends. Thank you for talking about the podcast. All of that really, really, really helps. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.